Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, that you have given it to us uh, this day uh, after we celebrated yesterday, uh, Reformation Day, and the great cost uh, that you used um, many men who've gone before us, uh, who even gave their lives in order that we could have the word of God in our hands and could read it for ourselves. Lord, we are thankful for that. We pray that we would not take that for granted today or even this morning as we dive into Revelation, that we could even read this on our own and study it together as men as nothing short of a miracle. Lord, thank you for that. And thank you for the way that you've revealed yourself, particularly in this book, but in in all of your word. We pray that we would see more of you this morning, in particular that we would see your son Jesus high and lifted up, and that in his victory, we would see our victory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation 12, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage uh, just to get um, us oriented, and then as we've kind of done uh, each week, we'll just kind of take it bit by bit. This is Revelation 12, and John writes this. He says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with uh, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he know his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to help the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. In the opening, uh, opening uh, just passages of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, this is what Lewis writes. It's an introduction. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors 
which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So Lewis writing this in the 1940s is saying, listen, there's two great errors when it comes to the devils, demons, Satan. One is to not believe in Satan at all. The other is to believe in him, but to make so much of him that you don't understand what the full extent, or what I should say perhaps better, the less extent of his power actually is. He goes on and says this. He says, they themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. You can either make too little or uh, too much of Satan, is his point. And if you know anything about screw tape letters, he goes on to write this amazing work of fiction that has a lot of truth to it. It's the story of a mentor demon named Screwtape mentoring an apprentice demon named Wormwood. Now, Barna, back in 2009, uh, did a, a study of Christians, the professing Christians in America. And uh, what they found, Barna Research, is this, that four out of ten Christians strongly agree that Satan is not a living being, but a symbol of evil. And so as we begin this morning, my question to you is, what do you believe about Satan? It's something I actually want you to talk about at your tables. What do you believe about him? Do you agree with that statement, that Satan is not a living being, but he is uh, a, just a personification of evil? Because according to Barna, four out of every ten of us in this room, that's kind of what we assume Satan to be. And furthermore, he found an additional two out of 10 Christians, so now we're at six out of 10, said they agree somewhat with their, that perspective. So I'm not totally sure who Satan is, but most likely it's just a personification of evil, not a living being. And so the question before us as we dive into uh, the existence of Satan, particularly in the book of Revelation, is we're already starting from probably a similar culture that C.S. Lewis is writing in back in the 1940s, uh, that, that probably many of us in this room don't think about Satan very much. Now, I would not argue that you think about him a lot. Okay, we'll talk about that. But that, you, that he is so far out of your mind uh, that, kind of like Lewis said, we're materialists, right? We, we believe what we can touch, what's tangible, right? So, yeah, we can believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that. But the idea of a being, Satan, that's hard to grasp. That's hard to wrap our minds around. And, and my challenge to you this morning is this. If Satan is real, and I believe that he is, don't you think that his greatest strategy against us was, would be to convince us that he is not real? To be able to attack us covertly so that not only do we not know who our enemy is as we fight against sin each and every day, but that we wouldn't even know that we're fighting a battle at all. Because what we see here in the book of Revelation in chapter 12 is a shift. It's literally the middle of the book. The first 11 chapters have a lot to do with who Jesus is, what he has done, authority, um, ruling over all creation, all eternity, coming in power and in glory and majesty and might and strength. And here from uh, this point on, from 12 on, it's the story about how Satan is ultimately going to be defeated. How Christ, in the end, gets the ultimate victory. 
we need to know who our enemy is. Not only so we know what the battle is, but we know what Christ has truly done for us. C.S. Lewis put it this way in the screw tape letters, through Wormwood and screw tape. Screw tape says this to his little Padawan, right? His apprentice, Wormwood. He says, I wonder you should ask me whether it's essential to keep your patient, that's us, right? Being tempted in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle has been answered for us. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest him a picture of something in red tights. Persuade him that since he cannot believe in it, he therefore cannot believe in you. I think what Lewis is trying to say is, you know, for most of us, our imagination of the devil is some squirrely looking comic book figure with, you know, two little horns and a pitchfork and a tail dressed in red tights. And because that is so outlandish to us, and it should be, that we don't actually believe in the real thing. This morning, we are getting a vision from John about who the devil is, the great dragon. But more importantly, what I want you to see this morning is not just that we need to understand who he is. We need to understand who Christ is and what he has ultimately done through the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and what he will do when he returns to defeat the devil, to defeat Satan forever. Okay? So the first thing that I want us to see this morning is this, that Satan's mission, his goal is to destroy the Messiah. Satan's mission is to destroy this Messiah. Uh, Second, what we'll see is that Satan has made war against the Messiah's followers. That's you and me. So first and foremost, Satan wants to destroy the Messiah. But second, he also is going to go after the Messiah's followers. But third, what Revelation teaches us is the Messiah has already defeated Satan. And ultimately, he is going to win the war for all time. All right, so first... Satan's mission is to destroy the Messiah. Revelation 12, verse 1. We're told this by John, that he sees a great sign appear in heaven. And the sign is a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And later in verse 2, we're told that this woman is going to give birth uh, to a son. A son that sounds a lot like, and I will tell you, we'll get to it in a second, is Jesus. So for that reason, most of us in this room might be tempted to think, okay, okay, this, I guess this woman, what John's talking about, maybe he's looking backwards, and he's talking about Mary. But that, I really don't think that is what John's talking about. That's not what the vision is meaning. It's not Mary, not a specific woman, much like uh, the rest of Revelation. There's deeper meaning here. But the ground rules for us are not to just let our imaginations run wild or imagine what all of this could be out in the future. But what John does time and time again in the book of Revelation is not for us to just look forward and to imagine what in our future history could this be, but it's actually to look backward into Scripture itself in order to really unpack and understand the visions within the book of Revelation. You have to know your Bible. You have to know your Old Testament. Because that is what John is drawing after, okay? That's what he's drawing off of. So if the woman is not Mary, who is the woman? Well, I would submit to you this morning that the woman is the faithful community of God, the people of God, 
that's begun with the people of Israel and is traced all the way to the church, the community of God both before and after Jesus Christ. And we get this from Genesis 37. Okay, Genesis 37. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says that this woman's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. In Genesis 37, we are told that Joseph dreams a dream. And in that vision, he sees a sun, a moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him. Who is the sun? The sun is Jacob. The moon is Jacob's wife. And the stars, there are 12. What do you think that could be? The 12 tribes of Israel, that's exactly right. The 12 tribes of Israel. So John is, is, is drawing back on this Old Testament tradition that, that remembers Jacob, right? The father, Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes seen as stars. And this is his vision. This woman, uh, throughout the Old Testament, Israel is seen as a woman, more specifically as a bride. That's how we are seen today as well as the New Testament church, right? We are this woman, this bride of God through Jesus Christ. And this woman, we are told, uh, being all of God's people for all time, in verse 2, we're told that she was pregnant, crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth, Right, So this picture of uh, giving birth, the agony of what that is, well, that is the persecution of God's people. Satan using kingdoms and authorities against Jesus Christ to attack the coming Messiah. We see this over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Right, Egypt going after Moses and God's people, that kind of persecution. That's what he's talking about. And in many ways, you can see Revelation 12 is this recapitulation. It's this rehearsal of all that's happened in the Exodus. But it's not just looking back, it's looking forward. She's giving birth, crying out birth pains, and we're told that she uh, uh, gives birth to a son. She gives birth to a son. I want you to consider the promise that is given to Adam and Eve uh, all the way back after the fall. And what, is, what are we told? that the seed of the woman, right, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. This is John looking back in our history as God's people. The promise then given to Abraham in Genesis 17 that uh, through Abraham's line, his offspring, a king will come to us, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so you wonder, okay, why would God pick out a man named Abraham in the middle of the desert for no reason? Why go after him? Because through Abraham's line, this promised Messiah is going to come. That is what John is looking at when he's thinking about this woman. He goes on, he talks about this in verse 3. He says another sign. So you have the woman who is God's people, the messianic line. And then you have another sign in verse 3. And this sign says this. As the sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon. All right, so I want you to imagine that. This great dragon, it's red, seven heads and ten horns, and on its head, seven diadems. So Satan here is depicted as a dragon. So again, let your, yes, let your imagination run, but where would John draw on that in the Scripture? Back to Genesis. We're told Satan is a serpent, right? 
this picture of a serpent, a dragon. We're also told by John that this, this dragon is red. Red symbolizing blood, right? Satan's desire to kill, to destroy, to murder God's people. And then we're told that he has seven heads with ten horns and seven diadems, right? So, again, the number seven being complete. The idea of horns we've already seen as a picture of power. So we see this picture of power, but it's the blasphemous kind of power. And, and the seven diadems, these seven crowns, it's the blasphemous power of Satan ruling over earthly kingdoms in order to thwart the Messiah. That's his goal. That's what he's after. His whole mission is to destroy the Messiah. Verse 4, we're told that his tail sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven and casts them to the earth. We could take this a lot of different ways. Uh, later, we're going to be told about the angels falling with Satan. Perhaps that was, that's what this is talking about. Again, I think this refers to Daniel chapter 8, where it's not necessarily the angels being thrown down, but it's a cosmic picture of Satan attacking again the people of God. Where God's people are referred in Daniel uh, 8 verse 10 as being like stars, being attacked. So here's the point. What John's trying to help us to understand with this vision that's beyond anything that we could possibly imagine with our, our minds. Satan is real, and he is after the Messiah. And he is after the Messiah's people. And he has been doing this from the very beginning. And he is doing this even now, and will do this to the end. We see, in, uh, he goes on, uh, he says, The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She, might, uh, she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God, to his throne. So we're told that through uh, the people of God, through Israel, came a child. That child is Jesus Christ. And this child would escape, escape the clutches of Satan and would rule the nations with a rod of iron. And he was caught up to God to his throne. Meanwhile, the woman who is the church fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Satan's primary mission is to attack the Messiah. And we see this, yes, throughout the Old Testament as he sought to attack God's people, uh, the messianic line to try to prevent the Messiah from being born. But we also see this after Jesus is born. So I want you to think about it this way. One of the main reasons why you should believe that Satan is real, because we see Satan in his fullness of being real, going after Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. So if you remember in Matthew 4, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted by Satan. Not a, a personification of general evil, but a person himself who goes after specifically Jesus Christ. He tempts him. And if you study that passage, what you'll find is this, that every temptation has a common theme. Jesus, don't go to the cross. Don't go to the cross. And that will become the temptation that Satan uses to thwart Christ over and over and over again in his earthly ministry. Don't go to the cross. Jesus is led out into the wilderness to be tempted. Satan comes to Jesus and says, prove your power 
by some other means other than going to the cross. His scheme, his mission is to destroy the gospel, to destroy the work of the cross, to destroy the saving power of the Messiah himself. This is why, if you remember, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And so Jesus tells Peter and the disciples, he tells them what he is about to do. That as the Messiah, as the Christ, he must go and die on the cross and rise again. What does Peter say back to Jesus? He just confesses that he's the, the Messiah. And then what does Peter say? Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go to the cross, Jesus. That's what Peter says. May it never be. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me what? Satan. Why would he say that? Is it just Jesus being, you know, really bold? Is he just thinking of the worst possible name that he can call Peter in that moment? Is he just exaggerating? No, he recognizes that Peter is speaking Satan's great lie, a lie that he started in the wilderness being tempted, right? The same lie through Peter. Don't go to the cross. Don't go to the cross. So Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus at the end, as he is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told that he is tempted to the point of even sweating drops of blood. And that kind of agony, that kind of temptation, and what is that temptation? What does he utter? What does he say? Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. If there is a way to do this other than go to the cross, do that. We see the agony of temptation, Satan going after Jesus Christ, the Messiah, trying to get him to thwart his mission, to ruin the gospel. But what does Jesus say? He doesn't give in. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And then Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, and he rises again. And in that moment, Satan is defeated. He loses the battle. And the message of Revelation is that, yes, Satan has lost the battle, and ultimately, he's going to lose the war. But what we need to understand is if Satan has already lost the battle, his mission to destroy the Messiah, if he's already lost that, Jesus Christ withstood that temptation time and time again in his ministry. He went to the cross, he died, and he rose again on our behalf. He has accomplished his work. If Satan has lost that battle, then now what is he doing? Well, if he can't get to the Messiah, the book of Revelation warns us that he's going to go after the Messiah's followers. And this is what we're told in verse 7, that Satan now, he has made war against the Messiah's followers. So we're told in verse 7 that this great war, a battle, arises in heaven. Michael, the angel, and his angels are fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels are fighting back. It's this picture of this great cosmic battle. And we're told that Satan is defeated. And there's no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon has thrown down the ancient serpent who's called the devil, Satan, this deceiver. And he is thrown down to the earth. His angels are thrown down with him. So it's this great cosmic battle, this battle that's been going on for ages that is going on even still. This battle where ultimately we see that Satan has no ultimate authority and no power over God. He has been defeated by God. 
He has been defeated through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because he has been defeated by God and has no power over him, then he will try to wield his power over us. We see this in verse 13. John says, When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, remember, who is the church, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness for, to a place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. So we're told that, yes, this dragon sees that he has been defeated, and so he goes after the woman. He goes after the church. And the church is nourished in the wilderness, we're told, for a time and times and half a time. It, literally, think about it, a year, two more years, half a year. That's three and a half years. That's 1,260 days. So it's the same figure that John mentions earlier. The book of Daniel tells us this figure likely refers to just our existence as the church of Jesus Christ from the ascension of Christ all the way to his return. So the point is this. We are going to face persecution as the church of Jesus Christ. Christ himself promised that to us. But what we need to understand is this persecution is not only going to come from cultures, not only going to come from societies, but this persecution is going to come from Satan himself. It's going to come from Satan himself. John describes the persecution in this way, verse 15. He says, The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away like a flood. Uh, in your mind, even picture the Exodus here. God's people trying to flee evil, right? Uh, the water being uh, a barrier to their salvation. But we're told the earth came to help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who would keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He stood on the sand of the sea. So Satan is defeated. He wages war against Michael and the angels, against Jesus Christ himself, and he loses. And now he has waged war on who? those who would keep the commandments and testimony of Jesus Christ. That's you and that's me. Brothers, you need to know that you have an enemy. That enemy is real, and that enemy has been defeated by Christ. And because of that, that enemy is now going after you, Christ's followers. How does he do that? What are his tactics? What does Satan do to go after the church of Jesus Christ? Well, we're told time and time again throughout the New Testament what this looks like. Je Jesus himself told us in the Gospel of John, John 10.10, 10, the thief, that is Satan himself, he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, to steal our joy, to kill us, literally, as Christians, to destroy the Gospel. He is going after the church, going after the followers of Jesus Christ, Peter will warn us, uh, later we'll get to this next semester in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, that we must be sober-minded. In other words, you need to know who your enemy is. Be aware, Peter says. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. See that image, this Satan prowling around, seeking to steal, to kill, to destroy the work of the gospel in us. Uh, Paul warns us, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, 
that we should not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We know what he's after. We know what he's trying to do. He could not des destroy the work of Christ on the cross, so he's going to go after the work of uh, Christ on the cross in us. All right, what does that look like? What does that mean? I would say that Satan, every one of Satan's temptations that goes after us really has one thing in common. It's the same thing uh, that he tempted Jesus with. Every sin, every lust, every um, desire for power, everything that you are after has one common thread. Don't go to the cross. He couldn't get Jesus to do it. Jesus went to the cross, and so now he's going to go after you and me. Don't go after the cross for your salvation. Don't go after the cross. There's no life there. That's the lie. There's life and power. There's abundant life and sex. There's abundant life and prosperity and financial security. That's what the deceiver, that's what the liar is telling us. Or he's saying you're not good enough to go to the cross. Maybe that's what he's telling you this morning. Maybe that accuser is saying, you, you are not worthy. You are not worthy of salvation from God. You are not worthy of his grace. And I'll tell you, if that's the lie that he's telling you today, you know he's actually half right. You're not. But that's why the gift of Jesus Christ is so profound. Because what Revelation is trying to help us to see is not just that Satan's real, not just that he's after us, John has given this amazing vision that is just a continuation of how powerful our Christ really is, how powerful Jesus really is. Satan has defeated, has been defeated at the cross, and ultimately he will lose the war forever. And that's where we're going to end this morning as you go to your tables. Thomas Brooks, a great little book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he says this, he says, There is nothing in the world that renders a man more unlike to a saint and more like Satan than to argue from God's mercy to sinful liberty, from divine goodness to licentiousness. This is the devil's logic. All right, so his point is this, that he, the devil is always going, Satan's always going to try to obscure the gospel for us, to confuse its message. That's his goal. Now that he has been defeated, his goal is to defeat the gospel in us. And what we must leave, and as we process this at our tables this morning, what we must leave as we go to work, as we live our lives each and every day, we need to understand what Christ has done, that his work is finished, that he died, that he rose again, and one day he is going to return. And when he does, Satan is going to be defeated forever. And this is what we're told. Uh, verse 10, I want you to look at verse 10. John says, I heard a loud voice. Now before, earlier in the book of Revelation, when John hears a loud voice, what does that mean? Who's coming with the loud voice? God himself. Christ himself, the king. This loud voice comes to John saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have been conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, 
and you who dwell in them. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, for he knows his time is short. I want you to hear that. The devil knows his time is short. He knows Christ is going to return, that he is going to be conquered by the blood of the Lamb. What does that mean for you and me? We must recognize that the message of Revelation is not just Satan is real. It's that we have a victory that exists in Jesus Christ, and that victory is ours. Satan has been defeated. There's a great story in the Gospel of Luke about the 72 who've been sent out to cast out demons in the name of Christ. And they come back to Jesus and they say, with great excitement, even the demons, even the demons bow down to us because of your name. And Jesus tells them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Your name has been written in heaven. If you know Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in his death and his resurrection for you, death has been defeated. Sin is no more. The old is gone, the new has come. Satan has been vanquished. And your name has been written in heaven. And there is no one who can erase that name, not even Satan himself. He has been defeated, and he will ultimately be defeated forevermore. And so what do we do? What does this look like, and how do, we, how do we do this practically? How do we live out of this reality? I'm going to leave you, and I want you to write this down, because this would be a great thing if you have time to study together at your tables. Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. In Ephesians 6, Paul tells us that we do not fight against just flesh and blood, but against powers and authorities, right? Against uh, the devil himself, the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, there is a cosmic battle, a war being waged. And what does he call us to do? To put on the full armor of God. To put on the armor of Christ himself. To recognize this battle has already been fought, it's already been won. And the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. And so we can put on the helmet of salvation, knowing that our names are written in the book of life. We can put on the breastplate of righteousness, knowing that our holiness has been secured for us at the cross. We know that we have a belt of truth, that that truth is the gospel itself and nothing can take away from it. And we even have an offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God itself. Brothers, we do have an enemy, and that enemy is real. But that enemy has been defeated. Jesus Christ died, and He rose again, and He will come again. And when He does, we know that Satan will be defeated forevermore. Until that day comes, we have been equipped as brothers in Christ, as the church, to allow our Messiah, Jesus Christ, to go before us and to fight with the gospel. Because in that gospel, there is power. Power that not even Satan himself can overcome. Let me pray for you. Let me send you to your tables. Father, this is heavy stuff for us, we admit. Uh, this is a, a lesson that unfortunately does not get covered a lot. Um, 
for us as New Testament Christians. Um, and so I recognize that there are many brothers here that a lot of this just seems so far-fetched and so out there. And perhaps for others, uh, as Lewis said, that must make too much of this, that almost make it like a fairy tale. Father, I pray that you would give us um, eyes to see the reality of a cosmic battle before us, uh, that there is a war going on, a war for our very souls. But more than that, I pray that you would help us to see the great message of Revelation 12 and the rest of Revelation, uh, that this war's already been won, that you have given us victory in Jesus Christ, that death, the schemes of the devil, even Satan himself have been defeated. And because of our identity in Jesus Christ, we have the power to overcome every scheme and every temptation. We ask that you would strengthen us now and be with our conversations as we process this lesson together in Jesus' name. Amen.